Good morning, Bentry Church. If you were coming to the mountains for the first time, going west from, say, Kansas, and you were excited to see the mountains, as you approach those mountains, you would see it and you would, your breath would be taken away, wouldn't it? You would like, oh man, those are beautiful. You've seen pictures, but as you look at those mountains, what you see in there is you see this one kind of monolith. And if you've never been to the mountains, you kind of think, well, maybe it's just all mountain right there. You can't tell that there are different mountains. But as you get closer, you start to understand that those are different mountains there. And what's funny about the mountains, as you get closer and closer, they look bigger for a little while. If you'll notice, if out on the eastern plain, like say from Greeley, the mountains actually look bigger than they do from here. And it's because here in Loveland, we're kind of in a valley. And what's interesting is as you come up to the foothills, the big mountains disappear. And the reason is the big mountains are kind of uh, hidden from view by these little mountains. So as you kind of go into these mountains through the different valleys and you hike and you suddenly see you are in valleys and sometimes narrow valleys. You can see a mountain on one side or a mountain on the other and you may not be able to see very far down the valley. And so you kind of work your way through and you think, well, this isn't one line of mountains like I thought. This is way deep. So you climb a mountain, you look at the top of the mountain and you realize not only is it not one line of mountains, but the mountains go a couple hundred miles as far as you can see. And it's beautiful. And you, you think, man, I didn't know all of this was here. It looked like just kind of one piece there. And what's interesting is you get close to some of the highest mountains. Some mountains that are very big start to appear that you said, I, I didn't even know that mountain existed because it was behind a different mountain. Studying the end times, studying Revelation is a lot like this. Because when you approach the book of Revelation and the book of Ezekiel, the book of Daniel, kind of those, uh, those uh, books that say, here's what the end time looks like, you, you kind of get a little afraid, a little afraid because you, you look at it and you go, man, it's just one thing. It's like something about tribulation and the end times and I know Jesus comes back and everything will be okay. The lion and the lamb will lay down together. It looks just like one thing, right? But as you actually study God's Word and begin to walk through this thing one step at a time, you begin to see different events, different things, where things sit in relationship. And just like our analogy is, when you climb to the top of one mountain and you look and you go, oh, it's much deeper than I ever thought. There are mountains here that I didn't even see. They're in Scripture. Why didn't I see them? Because you had to climb the mountain in front of it to get there. Does that make sense? You guys have climbed some mountains here. You've looked at this today and over the next few weeks. As we continue in our series, you're going to see some massive peaks arise out of nowhere. And you may not have ever even heard of these mountains much less have seen the firsthand. There are two reasons, I think, for this. One, I think that um, Revelation is simply just not taught very much in church. Uh, we've talked about that. I just don't think it's taught very much. And, and when it is, uh, it's, it's only those uh, verses that guys feel comfortable with. In other words, there, uh, there's no controversy, and that's kind of the second reason. 
Is there some verses that are are very controversial? Not controversial to God, but mankind kind of disagree on these things. So pastors, they think instead of tackling these verses, instead of working our way verse by verse, they kind of summarize big chunks. And they say, well, Jesus will come back. And they just kind of stand at the foothills and go, oh, it's too much to climb. But you guys are not like that. We are mountain climbers. We're going to open our Bibles and we're in the middle of this thing, right? We've gone verse by verse so far through this book of Revelation. Let's don't stop now because we're in some high mountain country. Here's my personal dilemma though. I'm convinced as your pastor of certain things in Scripture certain doctrines, and and don't be afraid of that word doctrine. That's simply the lenses we look through with. uh, We come up with those from the study of Scripture, but we have certain doctrines that we hold to. I study this stuff in detail, and quite frankly, the book of Revelation for almost my entire uh, adult life. The question I ask myself is for those views of Scripture that I don't agree with, how much do I teach my church about what I don't agree with? Does that make sense? So here's the dilemma. Do I teach you stuff I don't agree with or just what I agree with? And I usually just say, here's just going to teach you what I think Scripture says, what I agree with. But today is going to be a little bit different. I'm going to show you a couple of things that I disagree with. And here's why. They're open-handed doctrinal issues. Good people, good theologians, good Christians come down on either side of these issues. Now, I'm going to tell you what Bent Tree teaches and why you should believe that. But it's, uh, I want you to see what other people believe, but I'm going to also show you why they're wrong. Just because that's that's just me, you know, but I, I want you to do this. Here's what I want you to understand. Always take what I preach and compare it to the Word of God. This is important. If I ever quit preaching out of this, don't come anymore. If a church ever uh, leaves preaching from this, don't listen. Don't attend that church. Now, this is important to understand because I've got opinions, and I'm going to tell you what my opinions are. And I'll tell you when they're opinions. But you always take, no matter if I say if it's opinion or not, and you measure it by the Word of God. Even above, this is going to sound heretical to you, above your experience. Because your experience, quite frankly, is pretty easy to trick. Satan does it all the time. So always measure what we preach by that uh, Word of God. And here's the thing that you have. Uh, As believers in Christ Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside you. Amen? One of the main roles of the Holy Spirit is to take the Word of God, and it's called the inner voice of the Holy Spirit. As you read, as you study God's Word, both individually, as groups like this, and in small groups, that Holy Spirit starts to reveal what God is saying in that. That's powerful stuff. You have that ability. And so that will measure up. It will always measure up with Scripture. By the way, if any pastor ever goes, well, there's a new word from God. He, he, he says something like this. Uh, God has told me something he's never told anyone before. Run from that guy. Run, run from that guy or girl. So, well, let's pray and get started. Would you bow your head with me? God, our Father, our Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of Christ Jesus, your Son. 
that you gave to prove your love for us. You do love us, God, and we've sung about it. We sense that your Holy Spirit is in this room. Father, our prayer is that you would just reveal the meaning of the words of the book of Revelation. We want to know your character, God. We want to know who you are, Jesus. We, we know, Jesus, that you gave John the promise that if we study this book, these words, that you would bless us. Well, Jesus, we're here to claim our promise. We want your blessing here. God, would you make your words make sense? Would you help me make sense? Uh, would you guide us in your time with the power of the Holy Spirit? It is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's go ahead and get started. Well, because we are standing in the middle of this massive mountain range uh, of events of Revelation, let's just kind of climb to the top and just explain where we are, kind of look. I'm not going to go back like I have in weeks past to what we've climbed in the, uh, in the past, but just right around us. What's just happened, by the way, if you're just joining us, feel free to go back and listen to podcasts. There are where you get your podcast at. Apple's probably the easiest one, uh, but you can go back and listen to those podcasts all the way back to year one of the Revelation series. Uh, it's fascinating stuff. We walked verse by verse through this, so uh, but try to catch up. Here we go. Uh, this is fascinating stuff, but more than fascinating, we are learning the character of God, right? And this stuff is our future. If we can know something about God's plans for our future, maybe, just maybe, we will, uh, we will let those words affect how we actually live our life now. So last week we ended with the massive battle of Armageddon. <clears throat> it's described in Revelation 19, second half. Christ himself has defeated Satan all of his uh, armies that are marching with him, uh, Christ has defeated them. We see Christ Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords come to take his possession back, the earth. Amen? And uh, he has taken that away from Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and all of his followers that have received the mark of the beast on their head. Christ has won the battle decisively. Uh, Christ has won that battle with simply a word spoken from his mouth and all those who had that mark have been killed. They're physically dead. They have not seen the second death or judgment. That'll come in a couple of weeks, but I want you to see this. The armies following Jesus did not even fight a little bit. Only Jesus fought. We just were riding with them. And all those who stood against Christ, Jesus, and followed the Antichrist uh, are dead. The seven years of tribulation over, praise God. The seven years are over, and the Antichrist and the false prophet, they have not been killed, but they were captured alive at the beginning of the battle and then thrown alive into the lake of fire, which we call hell uh, for shorthand. Those humans left alive are millions who have survived the tribulation. Many have been killed. Millions have been killed, but millions have survived the tribulation. They had turned their hearts to Jesus before that battle. They had never received the mark. They have been persecuted. Uh, there are no unbelievers on the planet left alive at this point. Does that make sense? 
This is important to understand, though. And remember where we closed our time last week. Let's take a look at verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He's holding two things. We're not told the name of this angel. Some theologians have speculated this might be the archangel Michael. And they get that not from Revelation, but they get that from Daniel chapter 10. When Daniel is uh, greeted by Michael, who has said, hey, look, I've fought Satan one on one. So look at what this angel is holding. A key to the bottomless pit. We talked about the bottomless pit. The bottomless pit or the abyss is not hell. It is a holding cell, if you will, for Satan and his angels. And look, there is a key to that holding cell that the angel is holding. So what does the key represent? This is not in your notes. You may want to write it down. But the idea is a key can lock and unlock things. How do we know that? When it will be locked and unlocked? Well, whoever owns the key. In other words, God has the power to open and close this thing. There's angels in there now, some that will, we read will be released when the bowls of judgment are read. You remember that? Satan and all of his angels will be locked in there. But in other words, the timing and opening, closing of the abyss belongs only to God. That's important for what we're going to read in just a moment. But write this down. The great chain, on the other hand, is a symbol of God's power to restrain Satan and his fallen angels. This is so important. Sometimes we tend to give Satan some of the same attributes or character of God, and it's simply not true. We tend to let Satan in our minds rise to the level of God. But what we know about Satan is he is a created being. There is a good and a bad, but sometimes in the United States we have let Eastern religion kind of work its way into our mindset. You've seen this, this picture before, this symbol. You've seen this picture before? It's called the yin and the yang. If you have this on your car or on your water bottle, you may want to take this off. Uh, this is not a, a good symbol. What this says is it's Eastern religion that says God is just one force. He is good and He is bad. Sound familiar? And if the force is strong with this one, right? That's where that comes from. Now, I love Star Wars. Don't, you don't have to stop watching Star Wars, but don't get your theology from that. You know what I mean? Don't get your theology from popular culture. Get it from God's Word. What this says is good is on one side and evil is on the other. And it's kind of this really this epic battle between the two. And yes, there is an epic battle, but it is not a yin and a yang thing where uh, good might not win. It is really all powerful. Uh, uh, Satan is created and he chose to sin. He chose to oppose God. Uh, he is still limited in being. He is not even the strongest angel at this point, at least. There's an angel much stronger by God's will. Consider that phrase, on the other hand, God, though, is all-powerful. Now, this is hard to, whenever you talk about eternity, 
or limitlessness. Our minds just simply can't contain it. Have you ever thought about that? Well, because our minds are limited. The hard drives in our head, the, the thinking capacity is limited. But get it this way. Think of all power. Every electric outlet in the world for all time. Think of every breath of wind that has ever blown. Every storm, every bomb that has gone off, the power. Every uh, eruption of a volcano. Every time you lifted something heavy. Every bit of physical power. Every bit of spiritual power. Every bit of power comes from God. That's what all-powerful means. It doesn't mean he is saying, hey, I want this to happen. What he's saying is, I will use it all. Does that make sense? He is all-powerful. God is all-powerful. We said this back in Genesis volume 1 earlier this year, is the idea of God in creation we get wrong. God is outside of creation, or you could say creation is in him, another way to say it. Think about this. Time, space, and matter, we call the time, space, matter continuum. They all, scientists tell us, this isn't a Christian thing, this is just a scientific thing. Those all had to start at the same time. We'll talk about this soon. But this is important to understand. God's outside of that. He, he chooses to operate inside it, but he is outside. He is all-powerful. So we've got to get this straight in our head. So let's move on to verse 2. And he sees, this is the angel, sees the dragon, that ancient serpent. Why does he call him a serpent? That's, he appeared in that form to trick and try to get uh, Eve and Adam to choose sin, and they did. So the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, now, some people say, are there two things? No, that's like uh, when a uh, bad guy's standing in front of the court and he says uh, his name, he goes by this, but he also goes by this alias and this alias. He's just naming the names. Devil and Satan, the ancient serpent, the dragon, and bound him for a thousand years. He just takes a hold of him. I love this. Just takes a hold of him and binds him. And threw him in, I love that, he threw him, into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he may not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. This is one of those scriptures that confuses people. Don't let it. Walk through these mountains with me. This is going to challenge our thinking, but you got this. Get this picture down in your head. Satan and all his angels, all the angels or demons, what we call those, fallen angels, are locked up in this place for a literal 1,000 years. And we'll come back to this soon, but notice that he will be released at the end of the 1,000 years. What did we just learn? Who has the power to release Satan? God does. Why would he do that? A couple of questions. Why would God release Satan? And why a thousand years? Doesn't that just seem kind of arbitrary? Well, we'll have to wait on answering the first question until next week. Why, uh, why release him? But there is a huge answer to that. But realize that Satan does not escape. It's not like, oh, after a thousand years, he kind of figures out the lock system, knocks the guard over the head and leaves. That's, that's not it. Satan lets him, I mean, God lets him out. Uh, we'll see that. 
But the second question is why a thousand years? Write this down. This is the point today. Christ's physical return to the earth with all resurrected believers marks the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ on earth. Now, a couple of things you need to get there. All believers, all resurrected believers throughout time. Christ has returned with all the believers who have died on the earth from Adam through the end of the tribulation. They've all returned with Christ. They all have resurrected bodies. Now we're going to get more into this this week, but this is going to blow your mind. Christ was the first resurrected from the grave. Amen? We appear with Jesus in a real physical form, resurrected bodies on this earth. Our bodies will be like the body that we're in. We base this on Jesus' resurrected body. They recognized Him, at least most of the time. Apparently we look some, something different, but enough that people will recognize who we are. We don't know totally what those things are, but what he, how He was able to travel quickly to different places. Uh, it, it, there's lots to this we don't know. We'll explore that though next week. The Apostle Paul tells us, though, in, first, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, he says this about Jesus. And He, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? That He was resurrected on the third day after He was crucified on a Roman cross. That in everything He might have be preeminent. So, let me just ask. When it says everything, he might be preeminent. How many things would he be preeminent in? Everything. This is important to understand. He's all-powerful, and with this new uh, thousand-year reign, he is preeminent above everything. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. What does firstborn mean? Well, the first one among many. We will be resurrected from the dead too. Someone say Amen. That's good news for those like my parents, though, that have gone on to be with the Lord. My grandparents, they have gone uh, to be with Jesus. We say, when you close your eyes is to be present with the Lord. But their physical, earthly bodies are in graves here on earth, right? Now listen closely. We'll explore this in detail, but I just want you to get this. Our doctrine says, when the rapture happens that sets off the tribulation the dead in christ will rise first they are already in heaven but what it's talking about is their bodies will rise and they will have their new resurrected bodies for us who are still alive if we get to have that experience we will be caught up as well and be given new bodies in the twinkling of an eye we will all be changed do you see how that happens? Then all through the tribulation as people die, they are resurrected into heaven with new bodies through that time frame. And then they all return at the end of the tribulation. I want you to see this is important to understand because here's the promise for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Look for what I just explained to you. But our citizenship is in heaven, 
And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. You're going to have a new body. But here in Revelation 20, we, talking about Christians right now, if you are a legit believer, we stand with Christ Jesus then. We have returned to the earth with Jesus to take it by force from the evil one, and that has worked. Here's what you need to know. Write this down. Millennial means a thousand years. You've heard me say these interchangeably. I want to make sure you get this. Millennial kingdom literally means a thousand year kingdom. Here's what all Christians believe. All Christians believe this. A thousand year reign. But how we believe that is very different. There's three large ways and countless smaller ways. We're going to look at the three large ways. We all agree that the Bible teaches a millennial reign. You, you have to agree with that because it's in the Bible. But what that means is different. I don't want to teach you something I don't believe, but here's my goal is that it will show you why I believe, why we teach this at Bentry Church. In doing so, I hope it will increase your faith. So let's quickly look at three different ways to look at the millennial reign of Christ. You ready? Here it is. Premillennialists believe that there will be a literal 1,000 year reign, rule of Christ on the earth following the second coming of Christ Jesus. This is important that there will be literal, a literal 1,000 year reign. Just like years we have now. On the earth, this earth, following the second coming, following that great battle. This is why we believe and teach this at Bent Tree Church. If you don't hold to this view, listen to me. This is not one of those theological things to separate over. It's just not. There are some things, like if I told you there's no trinity, you should go to a different church. If I told you Jesus was just one of many ways to get to heaven, leave. This is not one of those reasons. The second view is this one. Amillennialist, or you can say amillennialist. Both are right. They believe that the millennium is the figurative, not literal, figurative spiritual reign of Christ that happens before the second coming of Christ. So it's a figurative thing in their minds. There's great theologians I love and respect that believe this. And bless their heart, they're just wrong. You know, I'm just, this is, I just, I tell that to them and I love them. But the, the prefix A or A literally means no millennium. It's, it's no physical reign of earth. It, 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 that's what that means. In other words, they think that this section of Scripture, this set of verses that speak so specifically, don't speak of a future event but that we will partake in, but rather they believe that this represents the church age that we live in right now. Now there's some reasons to believe this. They only think that this is an analogy like my mountain analogy that I gave you. Do you understand? Brothers and sisters, I could preach for hours here on this, but let me just say a couple of things of why I think this one doesn't work for me. Uh, one one uh, more than 2,000 years have passed since Christ's resurrection and ascension back up into heaven. Uh, we don't know when he will return. It may be another thousand years. On the other hand, it may be tonight. Praise God. 
And I'm ready. Are you ready? I'm ready. The point is, why represent 2,000 plus years with 1,000 years? And you go, Paul, it's just an analogy. Many of the church, in the early church, in that first generation that actually knew and interacted with Jesus like his mother, the disciples, those followers, they believed that Jesus would return for them before they would see death. But as they all finally died off and the years drug on, they took this idea, he's not coming back. Well, maybe the set of scriptures that we're talking about in Revelation 20 are really talking more about a general time frame. Well, that worked for about 1,500 years. Because they go, well, it's past 1,000 years now. Here's the problem that I see with this kind of analogy this is a one of among many problems, although seeing this as an analogy that numbers are not always used to represent measuring things, um, he could have said like a day or a week or a, a long period or a short period of time to say this is a general number, but he chose to use a thousand. And check this out. It's repeated six times in this short set of verses. That's significant. And you'd say, well, numbers are represent other things, and absolutely they are. The number 666 is a representation of something else, and yet it's also a real number. Here's the other thing. There's seven years of tribulation. Seven actually means seven years. There's seven bowls of judgment. Actually means, I could go on, there's four horsemen, Right? But another reason I can't go with amillennialism uh, is what we just studied about Satan and his demons getting locked up for a thousand years. Amillennialists would have you believe that Satan is currently locked up in a holding cell and that he is being restrained. Every once in a while I'll come across a person, not very often anymore, that they'll just in, uh, just, they're just ignorant, and not stupid, just ignorant. They'll go, I, I just don't think there's evil in the world. And I said, you haven't talked to a police officer or a firefighter or a doctor or a nurse or a pastor or a social worker because, baby, we've seen them. Or a teacher, right? Um, we've seen it firsthand. There is evil. Uh, they would say, and this fits with them, they would say, but when Satan is released, that's what causes the seven years of tribulation. Do you see what I mean? I just don't, I don't think that works. Plus, if you think of chapter um, 17 and 18, those are tons of revelation. Those are tons of imagery like the prostitute, the queen, the, the great Babylon. You see all these pictures. But then, do you remember, it switches in chapter 19. Chapter 19 and chapter 20 are very differently uh, laid out. They, it's very chronologically driven. They go, one thing happens after another. The battle, Satan's imprisonment, Satan's release. We could spend a ton of time here. I won't, but let me give you just one more reason why this is a doozy um, of a wrong thing. There are so many passages in the Old Testament that point to the future literal uh, messianic kingdom on earth, a physical. Now, I'm not going to read these. I'm just going to show you the passage. You can write these down, but we're going to hit it quick. These talk about a physical reign of Christ Jesus on the earth. Psalm 2. Psalm 72. Isaiah 2. Isaiah 9. Isaiah 11, Isaiah 35, 
Jeremiah 23. Micah 4. Zechariah 14. Those are just to name a few, folks. Just to like whet your appetite. They all point to a literal millennial reign of Christ on earth. And think about this. Do you remember when Christ Jesus is born in Bethlehem? He grows up and he's starting his earthly ministry. And there, the light's coming on for a lot of people, especially his disciples. But even the, the, uh, the leaders and teachers of the law, they're going, well, could this be the guy? He's healing people. He's raising people from the dead. Could this be the guy? And they go, no, no, no. He can't be the guy because the Messiah will come and overthrow the people that rule us now. Do you remember how they're all like going, his disciples are like, hey, when are you going to overthrow the Romans? And when you do, can I be like first in your kingdom, right? Can I sit on either side? Everyone thought he was coming for a literal reign at that point. The reason is these verses. Here's the third way people have thought about the thousand year reign. <clears throat> By the way, each of these have tons of variation. We're not going into that. I just give you the short version here. Postmillennialists believe a golden age of Christian prosperity and dominance will occur before the second coming of Christ. This is a particularly American, some European view this, but this is a particularly American one that gained traction huge in the 19th century. This is important to understand because this is similar to the amillennialist. They don't think a thousand year reign is literal, but the difference is that they believe that there will be a church age that will be this golden prosperity will, will dominate. And here's where the thinking was. If we can have this spiritual, the great awakening, the first great awakening, which was a solid thing, second great awakening, not so solid uh, doctrinally. Um, from the second one, you had massive uh, amounts of false teaching go out. It's where Mormonism comes from, is that second thing. And this doctrine specifically is this idea that says, if we can make America just the best place on earth, just make it a Christian world, then, listen, we could force Jesus to come back. He would say, look how great the world is under America. Oh, Jesus, you're welcome. Yeah, you come and reign us now. That's how they viewed it. Not everyone. This is where social gospel was born a dead uh, theology uh, that uh, hangs around in some liberal churches, but it's really uh, pretty much dead. Not many Christians hold to this anymore for the same reasons that amillennialism has been on the decline for the last hundred years as well. Now, you don't have to agree with me. You don't have to agree. You should, but you don't have to. This is not something you have to believe in to be saved. Amen? This is open-handed. But if you do believe what I'm saying, it begs a question, and I know you're asking it. Why a thousand years, and why on earth? Why not just go on to heaven and be done with it? This is what I was talking about at first from the distance. This can look like one of those giant mountains, and you're standing on it, and then you read, we got another big mountain. I didn't even see this one. 
Because most of us go, hey, why can't we just go into heaven and like be done with it, right? You know, like, hey, everything's perfect, no tears and blah, blah, blah. People are like saying, here it is. Why aren't we just going to heaven? Why this? They look at it and they don't understand it. So they play like this mountain doesn't exist. And we just talk about the new Jerusalem and we talk about that, but we don't talk about this. This is one of those mountains. We'll get to those, but why a thousand-year literal reign? Write this down. The thousand-year reign will fulfill the promises of God to His people and the world. And we got to cruise through this, but God had made promises to both His people, the Hebrews, but all the other nations of the earth. God even made promises to creation itself, like the earth and plants and animals. Those, those promises could not be fulfilled on earth with Satan free and corrupt people running the governments. All those promises I'm talking about are called covenants. Now we have a part in covenants, but covenant says I'm going to do this uh, whether you do it at all. They're one-sided, voluntary promises. They are not contracts. God promised He would bless Israel and restore the world in specific ways. Let's take a look at three different covenants. Let me give you a big picture of how these covenants are fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. Number one, covenant number one, Israel's land covenant. Now don't, don't go off on me here. Follow along close. I promise these are interesting. God promised Abraham that he would make a mighty nation out of him, out of his heirs. And he did. He built the Hebrew people. He promised them specific things, including land. He reiterated that to his descendants, especially Moses and Joshua, the land of Palestine, the land of Canaan. You can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And God did fulfill all. Almost everything. Listen close. You go, God fulfills everything. Not yet on this one. The Hebrew people have become a great nation. And crazy as it might sound, for those of you that uh, are older, we take it for granted that Israel is even a country now. The Hebrew people have become a great nation. They brought forth the Messiah. But they never received the full promise of the land God promised them under this covenant. They have never possessed it. In the millennial kingdom, the nation of Israel will be given that land. That's important to understand. It could not happen if we were just all in heaven and not on earth. Does that make sense? How about number two? The Davidic covenant. Davidic is just a fancy way to say David's covenant. King David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, the prophet Nathan is prophesying to the nation of Israel, but also to King David about his kingdom. Nathan prophesied that David's son Solomon would be the next king. That's interesting because Solomon wasn't even the first or the second in line to the king. And he did become king. He prophesied that Solomon would build a temple. He did. He prophesied that he would have other heirs uh, that would be both good and bad and that the nation would go off and become, come back and, and they would be good at times and bad at times. All that happened. Nathan prophesied that uh, all of this stuff. But then Nathan gave this message in verse 16. He said to David, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. 
Your throne shall be established forever. Jesus sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem in a thousand year literal reign on earth with His church in resurrected bodies uh, uh, and the believing Hebrews all together fulfills that covenant. God uh, does what He says. Amen? God does what He says. I mean, here's the thing. Uh, the third one, the new covenant, which you are a part of. When God's people had not obeyed His commands and turned their backs on God uh, and on His covenants, God had allowed the king of Babylon to come in and take them captive for 70 years to take the Hebrews back to Babylon. It's at that point that they were about to be taken into captivity. The last group, God said this to His people through the Old Testament uh, prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, after He brings them back, I will put a, my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Praise God. The thousand year reign of Christ on earth fulfills this prophecy. How? Because Christ will reign on earth. His people will know Him face to face. Because He will be there physically. Are you, you with me? The, the Jews will live in the land as Jewish people. By the way, I'm just saying, if Jesus is in Jerusalem, guess where I'm living? I'm just saying, I'm going to be in Jerusalem. The Jews will live in the land God had promised them. They will occupy it and the whole world will be ruled from David's throne in Jerusalem and Jesus, King Jesus, will sit on that throne. By the way, King David will also be there. That will be pretty cool. All right, the prophet Ezekiel prophesied this in the Old Testament uh, to the Hebrew people. He says, you shall dwell in the land. Talking about the Jewish people. He says, you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. But probably the most powerful of these prophecies about the new covenant is this one in Isaiah 59 verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from their transgression declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's children. That'd be grandchildren, says the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore. That scripture, if you're a Gentile, is not for you. It is for the Hebrew people. Now we can claim the scripture because we are grafted in, but he's talking literally to the Hebrew people. Are you, you understand what I'm talking about? I mean, God fulfills this new covenant in the thousand year literal reign of Christ on the earth, but I want you to understand that there are tons of other promises that God made that we can't get to. Let me just mention a few of them. They can't be fulfilled in any other way. 
Psalm 100, God promised Jesus that he would make his enemies a footstool and that the followers of Jesus would worship him freely. Daniel 7, God promised the world's nations, not just the Hebrews, but all the other nations, that they would live in peace with each other on the earth and with Israel. Is anyone at peace right now? No. Could that happen in heaven? No. Romans 8, the Apostle Paul tells us that the curse would be lifted from the earth itself. We're going to dive deep into this next week. He's talking about the curse way back in Genesis chapter 3, the fallenness of the earth itself. When Adam and Eve sinned and mankind and creation fell, he's saying that curse is going to be lifted. The curse would uh, work uh, for work with mankind, with thistles coming from the ground that we have to work with from the sweat of our brow. No longer will work be work. It'll be work, but good work. Like we'll enjoy it, it'll have purpose, no curse on the earth. Get this, relationships between man and women, men and women, that won't be cursed anymore. This is interesting. The curse of women in childbirth bearing uh, children with pain will be lifted. All the women said, yeah. <laughs> and some of you are going, wait, we're having children in heaven. I thought it was done. You know, it's like, listen, if you are a Christian right now, you are done. You will be resurrected. You will be ruling the world from different positions and you will have a different purpose. But the people that left or uh, survived the tribulation that have come in, they're believers, they will have babies and millions of them, possibly billions. Now, this is something interesting because some of you are going, I didn't even know this mountain existed. Isaiah 11 and 32 promised the earth's animals and all the creation would be restored to peace. The lion would lay down with the lamb. The little kid would put his hand in a, a, a pit of vipers. They wouldn't hurt him. Uh, the creation would be reset all the way back to the Garden of Eden level. In Ezekiel 34, we are promised that we would be free from disease. Praise God, there will be no disease in the thousand-year reign. I don't know if I can finish Revelation before Christmas, much less today before Christmas, but I also don't want to rush it. I don't want to rush it. These mountains of Scripture are there. I want to scale them. I want to see, God, what are you telling us? They're in the Bible for a reason. They are here for a reason. I want you to see them. I want you to understand who God is. Most of you have never studied or much less even read these verses. We only got to verse 3 today. Last week, we only got to... Well, verse 3. So we, we technically didn't make any more, but we looked at so much more in those same verses. You don't want to miss next week as we pick it up um, with what life will look like for you and for those people that survived the tribulation during that thousand-year reign. We'll look at how the thousand-year reign ends. Um, we'll see how far we get next week. We're getting so close to some of the biggest mountains in the background. Uh, let me ask you to consider a question that you can consider this week on your own. Why is God showing you all this? Remember a few weeks ago when we studied the prophet Daniel? God had revealed all of this stuff to Daniel. He had seen it with his own eyes. He felt sick. He had to lay down for weeks, you know, like going, I just feel sick. And God said, by the way, all that stuff that I revealed to you, 
seal it up. Because the time's a long way. It's not for anybody's eyes yet. But that's not what he told John, is it? He showed John the same thing. But what did he tell John? He says, write it down and make sure all the people in the churches know. Make sure you get it to all the pastors first. But make sure everyone reads this. And the people that read this will be blessed. The difference between that time in Daniel and the time when John is revealed, what's the difference? Jesus. Jesus had come. God incarnate to the earth to live the perfect life, to be killed as a sacrifice for our sins. What is God wanting you to know about this time coming? What is God wanting you to know about who you are in this, in light of this? What is God wanting you to know about himself that no other part of Scripture will reveal the same way? What is God wanting you to know here? I think it's because you have a role to play in this church. You see, when we pick Scripture out and we preach through, it's not as if we do it willy-nilly. We pray, we seek God, and then when we do that, we, we trust God's hand. See, you're here, you're being here and hearing this for the season is no accident. God is wanting you to do something here at Bent Tree Church, here in Northern Colorado, or here being sent out to either start another church or help a dying church, God has a purpose for you to hear this. What is it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're humbled by the chance to even get to read your words that so many of the Old Testament People wanted to hear. They wanted to hear what this was doing and what it said. And it wasn't until John was given the green light. God, thank you for revealing your purpose, your character in these words. Help us to internalize that. God, my prayer is that you would help us as a church to become the church you want us to be. Help us to live with urgency, God. Change our hearts because of the character of what we know about you by your words being revealed. God, thank you for these mountaintops that we get to climb together. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.